Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 4. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla. Because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came on to them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So in Acts chapter 18 and verse 1, we have read that Paul now departed from Athens after his short-lived sermon at the Areopagus arrives at Corinth. What would he have found when he arrived there in the late summer or autumn of AD 50? In this study, in this episode, we'll look at the city of Corinth and at Paul's settling in period in his new home, where he will live for the next 18 months. This preliminary study will then help us when we look at the text of Acts chapter 18 and when we read Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. But firstly, let's see what Corinth itself was like. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast. exploration of the passage that we've just read, there are four things we need to think about. We need to see that Paul gets to Corinth, that Paul gets new friends, that Paul gets a job, and that Paul gets to work. So Paul gets to Corinth. What would he have found? Well, Corinth was certainly an extraordinary city. When Paul visited, the old ancient Greek city would have been long gone. It was destroyed in 146 BC when Corinth had played a leading role in a rebellion of Greek states against Rome. The Romans had levelled the old city to the ground and they'd sold its entire population into slavery. But in 44 BC, under Julius Caesar, when the population of Rome was getting out of control, the city of Corinth was rebuilt and it was repopulated with freed slaves and Roman citizens, and at Paul's time it was a middle-class city with around 75,000 inhabitants. There was a good cultural life in the city. Every couple of years there was the Ichthyan Games, an athletic contest that was second only to the Olympian Games in the importance of Greece in that era. In his 18 months in the city of Corinth, Paul must have attended the games, for in some of his later letters he illustrates points with references to the practices and customs and traditions of the games. In the notes that accompany this lesson, I've given you some verses to look up and to check out, so that you can see just how he refers to winners and losers and the rules of the games. But what made it so attractive to rebuild this city for Rome was its geographical position. Corinth was built on an isthmus, a narrow strip of land at the place where the Peloponnesian Peninsula joined with mainland Greece. 
This strip of land was about five miles wide, and Corinth had a port on either side of the city, on either side of that strip of land. If you were walking through the streets of Corinth, you would often see boats being trailed on rollers through the streets. It was far easier to trail the ships across the isthmus than to sail them round. And at Corinth, there was always plenty of slaves to do the trailing. All the trade from mainland Greece down to the vast Peloponnesian Peninsula had to travel along that isthmus too. So you can imagine that Corinth was a constant hive of activity, with east-west and north-south trade all being routed through the city. All these sailors and commercial travellers contributed not only to the life of the city, but to its tourism and to its nightlife. In Greek drama, a Corinthian was always represented as a drunkard. In fact, Corinth was the actual tourist centre for Roman citizens. I've even heard that a citizen of Rome could book a package tour to Corinth. What made it so popular with Romans was its immorality. Corinth was an extremely immoral city. It was so immoral that the expression to Corinthianize became in Greece an indication of how far into debauchery a person or some people would go. Above the city was a flat-topped mountain, the Acrocorinth, upon which stood the temple of Aphrodite, the so-called goddess of love. That was the workplace of a thousand priestesses, all of them slaves, all of them prostitutes, and in the evening they would flood down into the city streets to ply their trade. Corinth was the Ibiza of the ancient world. James Montgomery Boyce makes it easy for us to remember the character of Corinth using three alliterated descriptions. He says that Corinth was cosmopolitan, Corinth was commercial, and Corinth was corrupt. So it was into this well-to-do, metropolitan, sexually corrupt city that Paul arrived, called by God to preach the gospel and to tell sinners that there is a way to God through Christ, that their sins can be forgiven, and that they can have eternal life. But first, his settling in period. Paul gets new friends. Verse 2 of our passage says that he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. Now it's at this point in the narrative that we're introduced to a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. We have learned that Corinth was a cosmopolitan city and that it had been colonised by Rome, and there was in Corinth a large Jewish community. The Jews in the Roman Empire were a legitimate religion. They were allowed to practise their faith and build their synagogues. In AD 49, the Jews were expelled from Rome for constantly causing trouble. One secular author and historian of the time, Suetonius, recorded that the troubles that were started by the Jews at Rome were because of Christus, Christ. Now we know that Jews everywhere were constantly trying to stymie the spread of the gospel. They were guilty of levelling false accusations at the Christian missionaries wherever they went, 
wanting them arrested and expelled from every city. And we know that Nero had persecuted the church at Rome in AD 50. So there had been a Christian church and Christians in Rome from the very earliest days. The gospel would have spread there. After all, every road led to Rome. And ships docked at Rome's port from all over the world. The gospel arrived in Rome very early on. Some of those Christians were converted Jews. They were expelled with all the other Jews in AD 49, and many of them would have gone to Corinth to swell the already large Jewish population there. And among their number were Aquila and Priscilla, two Jewish converts. Paul never claims them for his own converts. So they must have been brought to Christ in Rome and been part of the church at Rome. They seem to have been a wealthy couple with business interests right throughout the empire. F.F. Bruce speculates here that they may have had a leather or tent-making business with branches run by a local manager in different cities. That would seem to account for the easy way that they could travel between Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. They became lifelong friends and ministry partners with Paul. They gave him work at Corinth. They gave him a home at Corinth. They supported his ministry. When Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, he meant it to teach them a lesson. He meant to make life as difficult as possible for them. But God meant it for good. For at exactly the right time, when Paul arrived at Corinth, new friends were waiting, sent there by the Lord to help him. Paul gets new friends. Paul gets a job. Verse 3. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupation, they were tent makers. Well, I suppose when you're in a new city without somewhere to stay and you have no income, you really do need a job. And Paul, thankfully, had a trade. There's no surprise in that. Nowadays, there's a certain snobbery among the professional clergy. I remember being at the home of a bereaved family a number of years ago. I'd been asked to assist the local pastor with the funeral, and so we attended the home together. The family asked my colleague, are you a part-time minister in the church ministry? My colleague replied, well, part-time, full-time. It was almost as if he was ashamed to admit that he was an unsalary pastor, or as the Anglicans would say, a non-stipendary minister. It was as if having to work in a trade or a business was a degrading thing. But it's not. It's an honourable thing. And for a rabbi like Paul, it would be expected. For the Jews considered work as a highly valuable part of life. God worked in creation, and so should we. The rabbi would have a trade. He would study and teach only after his day's work was done. He would not be paid for teaching nor would he expect to be paid, and he would never ask for money for his religious work. Paul reminds his readers of his attitude to this in his letters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, For ye remember, brethren, our labour and travail, for labouring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, 
neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labour and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. In Second Corinthians 11 and verse 9, And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. There's a good lesson there for all of us. A godly pastor is not in it for the money. While Paul admitted that a labourer is worthy of his hire, in First Timothy 5 and verse 18, he writes, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. But there is something seriously unsettling about wealthy Christian pastors, men and sometimes women, who have accrued their wealth from the support that they have received from other Christians. Preachers with private jets and limousines and mansions, that would be completely foreign to New Testament Christianity, where the disciples were sent forth by the Lord Jesus without money. In Matthew chapter 10, freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Paul was a tent maker by trade. Paul came from Cilicia, and in Cilicia there was a breed of goat native to the region which had a fleece that was very suitable for making cloth used in tents and curtains. So the word tent maker in Acts chapter 18 implies a highly skilled worker in leather and cloth. Isn't that fantastic? Think about that. At exactly the right time, two Christian business people, Aquila and Priscilla, both of Jewish descent, owners of a tent-making business, are in Corinth and they're looking for workers. The AV reads that Paul came unto them. In the Greek text, it tells us that Paul approached them. He went for a job. And he not only got work, but in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, he got a home and fellowship and support and companionship. God works all things together for good, for those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Lastly, Paul gets to work, his real work. Verse 4 says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Paul adopts again his missionary strategy. There's a synagogue in Corinth. Paul visits the synagogue, debates with the Jews. The word is dialegomai, and he persuades them of the claims of Christ. Now we know exactly what his message was here. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 he tells us, he tells us there that I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we have seen the first steps of Paul in Corinth, a place where he would be greatly used of God, and where a new church would be established to the glory and praise of God. But what about Paul himself? Ministry, months and months on the road, loneliness and beatings and pain, false accusations and imprisonment. What's going on in Paul's heart and mind? God willing, we shall look at that in our next Lord's Day together. <music> 